Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, June 16th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, this week, former President Donald Trump pled not guilty to a federal indictment for the way he handled classified documents after leaving the White House. He was arraigned Tuesday at a federal courthouse in Miami and charged with 37 counts, including more than 30 counts of willful retention of national defense information. Meanwhile, House Republicans subpoenaed Hunter Biden's former business partner, Devon Archer, as part of their ongoing probe into the Biden family's business dealings, including an alleged $10 million bribery scheme. And the GOP National Committee has embraced a new get-out-the-vote strategy based on ballot harvesting, mail-in ballots, and some other things that just two years ago they opposed as threats to democracy itself. Joining me to talk about all this are Tom Babin, president and co-founder of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington Bureau Chief, and columnist and associate editor A.B. Stoddard. So, Tom, Trump has raised more than $7 million since the indictment, and he seems pretty bulletproof in the polls. CBS poll I saw says that 76% of likely Republican primary voters think the indictment was politically motivated. So what effect, if any, is this indictment going to have on the GOP race for the White House? In the short term, it's going to do what it always does with Trump, which is, as the CBS data suggests, galvanize Republican voters to his side. Because even if they don't like Donald Trump, they believe he is being treated unfairly, persecuted, not prosecuted. And look, I I think there's evidence to support that. That being said, I mean, we'll have to wait and see what what the evidence comes out of trial, what the defense is, um, you know, and maybe that will somehow change the dynamic. But we live in a in an environment right now where everybody on the left thinks this is just a this is a slam dunk case. He's a criminal and needs to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Jack Smith has the goods and all that, and and all the folks on the right think it's a you know more of a witch hunt, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not sure how much of what comes out in the in the in the coming you know days and weeks and months is going to you know change a lot of minds. It just it hasn't done it in the past. I don't expect it to do it this time. It does have an effect on the on the twenty twenty four primary and how these candidates that are not Trump handle it, and uh, it certainly could have an effect on on the general election. But right now, I mean, it's kind of more of the same. So, AB, uh, Tom says it might be a witch hunt. Uh, do you see it as a witch hunt? And what effect do you think it'll have on the race? Of course, I don't see it as a witch hunt, <laughs> but I agree with Tom that I don't think it's going to shake up anything. I was um, convinced on this podcast months ago that Ron DeSantis did not really have a plan to break through and build a coalition that could knock off Trump. I don't see Trump getting knocked off in the primary. I see him being the nominee if the election were held tomorrow. Things can happen like a health event, but more indictments, I don't think, are going to knock Trump out of the race on the path to the nomination. So I think he he ends up, even if he gets indicted two more times, being the nominee of the party. And I don't know what the elect- general election polls will look like a year from now, but the, he, he's in pretty good shape in them now. So um, I don't think it changes much. It's, you know, it raises his money. It galvanizes, you know, all his voters. And because the other contenders refuse to take him on, you know, they look stupid. So... I think, you know, we, we know because we're, we've been watching this closely. We've been watching Trump for eight years and what he's done to the party. 
And we know watching the people who are in this field that they literally are hoping that the voters get really tired of all of the law breaking and criminal charges. And they get tired of Trump having these big flashy ceremonies with each arrest and, you know, having special lights and, and in his motorcade on TV and all of the excitement and cashing in and um, that somehow the Republican primary electorate is going to start snoring and pick another candidate. That is their only plan to take Trump out. So I don't think anything really changes. Carl, you see it that way? I would add something to what, to what AB said, because yeah, there is a way that Republican voters coalesce around another candidate. What they decide is that a, what's being done to Donald Trump is unfair that the Democrats have weaponized uh, the criminal justice system and they, and they hate it. B the best way to, to stop that is to beat Joe Biden. See, the best way to beat Joe Biden is to nominate someone other than Donald Trump. And the problem is every single day, it seems like a new Republican uh, gets in the race. Republicans are now entering the race. I don't know about you, you guys. I cover this stuff full time and have for years. There are Republicans entering the race now who I've never heard of. You know, yeah. Republican governor of a state I never heard of. Basically, or a city. I didn't know how a Republican governor. Well, we, we, had, we had Mayor Suarez from. Yeah, uh, that happened earlier this week, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I've heard of Miami. I never. <laughs> I didn't know much about Mayor Suarez. I didn't. But anyway, here he is. He's running. Um, every person that runs makes it more likely, in my experience, that Donald Trump will be nominated. And why do I say that? Because I covered the 2016 election. That's what happened. So, you know, Tom and I were talking earlier in the year about will will they coalesce quickly this time? But the more you, the more people you get in, the harder it is to do that. And when, I, I want to say one other thing Tom said about, uh, you know, people retreating to their corners. I mean, that's happened in the media as well as in, on Capitol Hill and among, in parties. You know, uh, Dahlia Lithwick of Slate said, that, you know, the right is spinning these lawless nonsense fantasies about Trump. And Conrad Black, conservative writing in The Sun, said, uh, a country that uses law enforcement this way is committing constitutional suicide. But the column that I was focused on was people who said, all right, so what are Trump's chances in court? And uh, Politico had an interesting column basically suggesting that his only real defense, Trump's, to these charges is to win the presidency again and pardon himself. That's his best thing. And that and that's where he's really putting his energy. And, and that's what that rally was really about after the indictment in Miami, getting the mega base excited again for his candidacy. But I don't actually see it that way myself. I, I think that Donald Trump is much more likely to avoid prison if he's not nominated because turning around the argument that, that I was talking about before, because any president could pardon Trump or issue executive clemency more likely Biden could do it for that matter. But if it's uh Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Tim Scott as the nominee, I think those people are more likely to beat Biden than Trump is. And if they win, then I think that they they would be under pressure to pardon Trump and and or or, or issue clemency that spared him prison. You've gone all the way from where we are today to Trump in prison. That that's just no, no, but out of prison, <laughs> out so of Trump prison. avoiding prison, avoiding is what, prison. What I'm, is right. Where I'm trying to take this. Okay. All right, Tom. All right. Carl makes it sound like uh, like the case is very strong, and a lot of people have said that. Um, at the same time, a lot of people are saying that it's not that strong. Yeah, we're we're not lawyers, but we play one on the yes, podcast. Right, yeah. So, um, I have watched and read 
a lot of legal scholars talking about this case. And you're right, there is real varied opinion. And I think it does depend on the actual merits of the case. And, and you know, I was watching Trump's former attorney, and he was he has said this on, on a number of occasions, talking about sort of the prosecutorial misconduct, the, the aggressiveness with which Jack Smith and his folks have pursued this case and, and uh, you know, trying to trying to pry open the attorney-client privilege and, and all of these things. Setting aside the merits of the case, okay, just sort of taking a step back. I mean, this idea that there is, you know, no one's above the law. That's what everyone's, no one's above the law. So we have to, you know, we have to do this. That's a fine ideal to have, but it is true that prosecutors make discretion. They, they make choices all the time and they've made choices about other cases similar to this. And, and it does seem that Trump is being pursued aggressively and look, he makes it easy on his enemies. I mean, there was a story in the Washington Post yesterday talking about how how many times he was counseled to just ignore the advice, advice of his uh, legal counsel to just give back the documents, or he could have done a number of things. He didn't do it, and he forced this, and and it became what it became because of the choices that he made. So he 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 makes it easy on his enemies uh, to do this kind of thing. But at the same time, it's it's hard to ignore a the past cases where. Other folks were treated differently, and B, just in the broad scope of things. I mean, the fact that he is the leading candidate for of the opposition party and Joe Biden's, you know, his Justice Department is pursuing this case as aggressively as they have. It's it's not a good look. I mean, it's not a good look for for the republic. It's not a good look for anybody. And and for that reason, it just makes me really really uncomfortable that we've gotten to this point. And I, I do think it's it's very damaging to the republic. So, Abby, you know, there's an aspect of this that, that I was sort of interested in this week, and that's these protests or, or demonstrations that happen both in New York and Miami. You know, there was reports, and especially places like the New York Times, that there was a fear that there would be violence associated with this. They quoted Rachel Kleinfeld, who's a senior fellow in the Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program at the Carnegie Endowment. Um, she said, uh, people stayed away from the pro-Trump protests including those this week, fearing they might become entrapped in what they believe to be a false flag operation by the FBI. I'm just wondering, is is that a downside to what we're doing here? And that by tamping down or making people fear that if they come out and protest, they're going to be uh, profiled as terrorists, that we're sort of impinging on people's freedom of expression. Because in both these cases, there was no violence. I checked. I don't think there was a single arrest in, in either case. None of us are experts in this area. There are people in our government monitoring threats online and discussions online, sometimes among really crazy people, some of whom showed up on January 6th and did really bad shit. Excuse my French. So I think the four of us can sit here and say, you can show up at a protest, and as long as you don't do anything wrong, you're not going to end up in jail with your rights taken away and the, and the key thrown away. So we have had violence. Trump is good at stoking it. He uses apocalyptic language about the final battle. And so we're in a really weird place because of him um, and, and his record. And there are people that post stuff online about how they need, they're waiting for the orders from him. So, and they talk about civil war. So 
I know it's a balancing act for the professionals who are making these decisions, but I think people showed up all over Florida, near Mar-a-Lago, near the courthouse. And I don't know that any of them, you know, had their civil liberties violated. Andy, I'd like to go back to what you were, what was Tom was saying, um, that it's not a good look. I, I think that's a mild way of saying it. It is, it is a disconcerting thing for our republic to have uh, a presidential administration indict criminally and try and imprison the previous president, who's all happens to be the front runner in the next in, for, the, for the next election. It's just, I was being diplomatic. I, I understand. You know, I'm, you know I, me. I'm so sensitive. I'm agreeing with you, Tom, and complimenting <laughs> you for your un, thank you uh, for your restraint, but. <laughs> But I want to I want to I want to point something out. Um, AB says that uh, you know, Trump has led us to some tra- strange places. So has law enforcement, though. So has the FBI. So has the Justice Department. And so is the whole. And maybe it's Trump is the original sin here. But when Merrick Garland was appointed by Trump, and Merrick Garland, of course, if you're a Democrat, should never been appointed. Excuse me, by Biden, never been appointed Attorney General. He should have already been on the Supreme Court. But <laughs> leaving that aside. Biden said explicitly several times in public that he would make no, that Merrick Garland would run that department without any political influence from the White House. So when we say Joe Biden's Department of Justice has indicted Trump, that that's only technically correct. It's really Merrick Garland's Justice Department. When Biden did that, I was troubled by it at the time. And everybody said, oh, that's great because it'd be better than these other Justice Departments that were politicized. But that, that is a constitutional, in my opinion. That's part of the executive branch. And so the com- because he said that, and he said it publicly, and Merrick Garland said it publicly, the kind of conversations that you think might have taken place never were able to take place. And by that, I mean Joe Biden calling in uh, Merrick Garland the way President Obama would have done with, with Eric Holder or John Kennedy would have done with his brother, Bobby or or Clinton with Janet Reno, and it said, hey, um, obviously, uh, Merrick, we're, we're not going to indict the leader of the other party. We're obviously not going to do that, uh, just as a political point. So instead, we're left with these, these bromides. Oh, we're a country of laws. Trump voters are going to feel that they've been disenfranchised, that they've been attacked, that they've been singled out by a Democratic Party administration, by the FBI, by the Justice Department. And you can say that this is Trump's fault. He should have just given him the documents. And I'm already in record as saying that. But there are bigger principles at play here. One of them was this this thing, this nicety that we've come where you you can't interfere with the FBI or the Justice Department. But it's part of the executive branch. Nobody nobody elected Merrick Garland president of the United States. This is an awesome power he's been invested in, and they've acted like the process was driving it. And nobody ever stood, took a step back in this administration and said, "Wait a minute, what's the big picture here?" And I feel I feel that that's that's unfortunate. But Carl, you're, you're you're making the assumption that Joe Biden would actually say that to Merrick Garland if he called him into his office. I, I don't, Joe Biden. I don't know what he'd do, but he never. My point <laughs> okay. is, he was ham. He never could entertain that thought, Tom. You th- okay? Fair enough. But I mean, Joe Biden has given plenty of, uh, you know, AB says Trump uses apocalyptic language. Okay, fine. But Joe Biden is hardly any better in the way that he has talked about. Oh, you're you going to bring up the Nuremberg rally again. <laughs> I am going to bring Philadelphia. up the Nuremberg rally yeah. and, and, you know, declaring, uh, you know, half the country is as domestic terrorists and fascists and, and, you know, threats to democracy that worked to a certain degree in 2022 in the election. And, and they are almost certainly, I mean, Kareem Jean-Pierre says it from the, from the podium, uh, all the time, even in violation of the Hatch Act, apparently, according to some watchdog, but look, that's part of the, that's part of the playbook for, for 2024. So, I'm not sure what Joe Biden would have done, but I 
very skeptical of the idea that he would have sat Merrick Garland down and said, listen, we're not going to do this because it's bad. It's going to be bad for the country and bad for, you know, bad for the Republic. I'm kind of with, with, with Mitt Romney on this, that like Tom noted the reporting that Trump had so many chances to make this right. And he was, and, and his attorney general, Bill Barr made this very clear on Fox on Sunday that he invited this. He asked his lawyers to lie. He obstructed justice. It's not making it easy on your enemies to obstruct justice. You're just breaking the law. Trump is a criminal. He is an unindicted co-conspirator in a felony crime in Michael Cohen's campaign finance thing going back six years. And he has, I have a list here that would take all day of things that he's up to his ears in legally. And Mitt Romney makes the good point that like, we should all be really pissed that we have to go through this, that we have to find a jury pool that has to go through security clearances because there's classified information and our military secrets have been exposed. This is incredibly reckless and it's freaking crazy. And I'm really pissed he did this to us. I don't want him to be indicted. I don't want him to expose our secrets. I don't want to spend the taxpayer dollar on this. I don't want this administration to be indicting that administration. I mean, why did he have to do this? You know, Judge Ludig thinks that he actually wanted to get indicted and wanted to do this. And so I just feel like, I'm so exhausted by his by his criminal conduct. I, I, the I, you know that whole I, I think everyone should read that piece, the reporting about Tom Fitton and Judicial Watch and all the advice he turned down, and how he just refused to comply repeatedly. And then read you know Andy McCarthy and people who are are looking at this case and saying he had the chance, he had multiple chances to do this right, and he didn't. He wanted to obstruct. And so I think that's worth pointing out. He's going to drag this country through a lot. Fair enough. Okay. But I think the point that that people would make is Hillary Clinton destroyed 30,000 emails or something after they were subpoenaed by Congress. They She smashed phones with hammers. Okay. That's obstruction. Where was the indictment? Where was the raid? Where was all the all of the tools that have been used against this president, who again is the leading candidate for the opposition in heading into the next election, like it or not, it's just a fact, to use those tools against him. I, I understand they tried to negotiate with him, but like the government was not using these same sorts of tools against anybody well, else. I'm on record and people can go to Real Clear Politics and find everything I wrote in 2016 because I thought she should have been prosecuted as well. I agree. Okay, fair enough. I mean- AB's a rule follower, I'm re- Yeah, I really, I'm a firstborn <laughs> child of divorce- and I follow rules. And I really hate the idea that Trump believes that there are no rules for him. And his supporters are literally begging him to be able to get away with stuff that they they know they couldn't get away with. There's something about what, what AB is talking about this, Tom. And, and we talked about this, you and I did, last, uh, on Tuesday. What, what Trump hasn't done is offer any kind of defense or, or explanation. It's odd. You know, normally you're accused of a crime. You say, you know, I didn't do it or, or, um, you know, another guy did it or it's not a crime, you know, or it's a misunderstanding or this guy, he's never even explained. The FBI goes down there. If that indictment's accurate, I have no reason to believe it isn't, but they, they, they not, it wasn't just the, his own lawyers. It wasn't who begged him to do this is the FBI itself. They said, you know, 
what AB is pointing out is that up until very late in the game, Trump could have said, listen, General Milley and these other people have written books about me, said scurrilous, ugly, horrible things. I've got to write my I've got to write my own memoir here. I've got to rebut this. I need the material to do it. Um, I'm not trying to break the law. Go through there and take anything you want, but but I, I need access to that. And they would have said, well, Mr. Very patiently, Mr. President, the National Archives has provisions for that. You might have to send somebody up or take notes or, you know, we, we're not trying to deprive you of your ability to write your memoir. That, that's not what this is about. Uh, you just can't have these documents being stored in kitchens and bathrooms and stuff like that. So he's never explained why he didn't do that to this day. To, he gave two speeches on it. He went to a diner. He, he's never even engaged that point. And so when AB says she's frustrated, I, that's the right, that's the right reaction. I mean, this guy is putting the country through this, Tom. Nobody's making him do but it. This is my frustration. No, no ta- regular Joe and Mary taxpayer can get away with sexual assault, battery, defamation, corporate tax fraud, campaign finance fraud, um, indictment of the Espionage Act, election interference in Georgia, and then the potential sedition, the conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to make false statements, obstruction of official proceeding, inciting insurrection. I mean, everybody in this country knows they would be done if they did one of these things. And suddenly the deep state has made up all of this? I mean, come on. I'm tired of it. I want to move on, but just one thing from the CBS poll to AB's point. They asked Republican primary voters how their view of Trump did change in in light of the indictment. 61% said it won't change at all. 18% say it depends. 7% said it would get worse. 14% said their opinion of Trump got better. That reminds me of when the sex scandal broke in the White House, Bill Clinton's job approving jumped up. Yeah. (laughs) A, I, voters know how polls are used. Let's just point this out. Yes, that's true. But just to frustrate AB even a little more. <laughs> People, they have no morals, they have no shame, and they don't follow the rules. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about these House Republicans. House Republicans did ratchet up the pressure on the investigation to Hunter Biden and, by extension, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, they subpoenaed his former business partner, this uh, guy named Devin Archer, who served on the Burisma board with Hunter. Just a little background. Archer, he's 48 years old. He was sentenced uh, in February of last year to a year in prison, a year and a day in prison, actually, for his role in this scheme that was to defraud some Native American tribe of $60 million. His appeal was rejected just last week, so he may be heading for prison. So, Carl, is the circle tightening here on Biden, or is this just going to keep on keeping on? I don't know, because I don't know what there's a prosecutor in Delaware looking into this. It seems that Hunter Biden would be a pretty easy person to indict if, if you were so inclined. There's technical things he's admitted to. He's paid back taxes, so he apparently fraudulently filed income tax reports. He he filled out a gun permit and wasn't apparently truthful on that, said he didn't use drugs. But just to cut to it, I mean, the accusation here is not about Hunter, but it's about Joe, right? So Hunter Biden has is, is always been, until recently, considered a separate thing. What What's new in the last year, nine months, is this allegation that Hunter Biden and his, excuse me, his uncle, Jim Biden, the president's brother, were engaged in a pay-to-play scheme with foreign governments, Ukraine and China, 
to name two hot spots in, in return for either favors in Republicans telling or or simply access to the then vice president access that apparently was granted in in some of these cases. But what's new is that there were these in on the Hunter Biden laptop was this language that there's a cutout for the big guy, 10% or something. And the big guy is Joe Biden. That Joe Biden personally profited from these, which would be obviously illegal. And there's whistleblowers saying this stuff. Uh, it's, it's all very murky. It would have been nice if the government, the same people were going after Trump, you know, with AB style integrity, it showed the same amount of concern for the for the rule of law when the Bidens were there. Instead, the FBI has gone around trashing its own whistleblowers and doing things like that. People have come to the conclusion that mega people, Trump supporters, that there's two systems of justice, one for Democrats, one for Republicans. And the FBI has become partisan and politicized. This is not a good development, obvious for the country that so many people believe this. I haven't seen the smoking guns. I don't have all this evidence. I, I don't know if this is true. Maybe a lot of it's just normal Washington, disgusting, but legal influence peddling. Maybe that's all it is. It does seem like the investigations are moving slowly. And that's one of the allegations from one of the whistleblowers that the Hunter Biden stuff is being slow walked. That's also not a good look for the administration. If they're going to prosecute Trump, they probably have to show at least, what, I don't half as much interest in this case, and they don't seem that they have. Yeah, I I have had a problem with presidential and vice presidential nepotism for years. I think it's disgusting. And I think if Hunter Biden peddled his influence and, and, and was paid for it, that needs to be exposed. The House investigations are not going so well. You know, maybe they're building to which would be strategic to push it into the electoral, you know, into the calendar year of the election and have the better stuff come out then, but they have not produced the goods. And I want the goods. Well, but AB, they said they're not being provided with the documents. So that's their story that they're, that the FBI, the FBI is stonewalling. But Senator Grassley them. said there are tapes. And then Senator Johnson was just on Newsmax and Ron Johnson. And they asked, are there recordings? And he said, I actually don't know that there are. And Grassley didn't, doesn't, I don't, I don't know how to find them. And Grassley did not say that, like, you know, he knows that there are these recordings. That, and so I really think because they're trying to beat Joe Biden and because they're alleging serious stuff, I, I want to see it. Uh, I think that I agree with Carl's point that if the Hunter Biden investigation, they need to put up or shut up and they need to do it soon at, at the DOJ. But in terms of the House Republicans, they really need to come up with something. I understand whistleblowers are disappearing and maybe they've been killed. I don't know what they're alleging. I know this is really good fundraising for them. Senator Grassley needs to come up with those recordings. We need an explanation for why we don't have the smoking gun. I want to see it. Well, Tom, what do you say? Two things. First of all, I'm, I'm going to clarify what Carl said. The Hunter Biden emails, that's not new. That was part of the campaign. That was Tony Bobulinski. That was the part that got suppressed right before the election. I think the the most obvious lie that Joe Biden has told and continues to tell to this day is that I never once spoke with my son about any of his business deals. Now, we have enough evidence that that is a lie and nobody's asked him about it. Nobody's pressed him on it. And when he does get questioned about it, he's just said, oh, that's malarkey. And that's it. That's enough, apparently, 
so that's one thing. He started during the campaign with this with this huge lie that he never talked to, to his son about his business deals. The information, what's new is there's this form 1023, the FBI, that alleges that Biden and his son were part of a $10 million, you mentioned this at the top, Andy, a $10 million bribery scheme. Grassley came out on the floor of the Senate and said there were these recordings, 15 of them with Hunter, two of them with Joe. Maybe they exist, maybe they don't. I don't know. We'll have to find out about that. But but there is this form. We do know now that the FBI has said that it does exist. It is declassified. They are not making it public. They have been sort of stonewalling and slow walking this. And their excuse is, well, if we produce it, you know, the the confidential human source that provided this information, it's going to, you know, endanger their lives. The deputy director of the FBI just sat before the Senate committee the other day and took questions from Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and others and just refused to really talk about it in any way, shape, or form, which is astonishing. Again, it's not even a classified document. So why can't the American public see it? I mean, AB, you want smoking guns. I mean, that's, that is a document that maybe they don't have the tapes, but why can't we see that document? Why, why didn't we see it last week or two weeks ago or a month ago when it was first asked for? Why won't the FBI show it to us? I mean, it's just, again, it's a, it, it seems as if Joe Biden is being sort of protected uh, that he's not being asked hard questions, that he's not being scrutinized. And and these are serious allegations. And I would think that, you know, the administration would want to say, instead of just saying, oh, it's all bullshit, it's malarkey, you know, like, as Joe Biden said yesterday, well, some, you know, Steve Nelson, I guess, from the New York Post, like shouted this out at one of his events, like, why, you know, why were you the big guy? And he said, don't ask, why'd you ask such a dumb question? That was his response. And that was the end of it. I think I think we should get to the bottom of it. it should be investigated, and and hopefully that will happen. But boy, it's like pulling teeth trying to get any information. I mean, I agree that I think that the the Justice Department has to they have to charge him or they have to exonerate you know clear him. They they really I think by the end of the year they have to do this. I mean, I think they should have done it now, but it is um, it's being characterized as you know by the Democrats as old unsubstantiated unsubstantiated allegations. Blah blah blah. The best thing for the administration to do, if that's what Jamie Raskin is describing it as, is to release it. Well, let's talk about the Republicans for a second here, though. D- different Republicans. We'll talk about the, the National Committee. They had this change of heart. Uh, I think it was last week, actually, when it comes to ballot harvesting, which we've talked about before on this podcast. And they've got a new election strategy, Carl. It's called um, Bank Your Vote, where they want to help uh, Republican voters quote, and this is from their press release, vote as early as possible through in-person early voting, absentee voting, and ballot harvesting where legal. This was something they were pretty much against up until about two years ago. Have they just seen the writing on the wall? Or is this the death knell of democracy as we know it? Well, no, Andy. It's not. It's (laughs) maybe the death death knell of honest elections. But if both sides are cheating in the same way and there's only two parties, who's going to complain? Early in my career, I covered a scandal. It was a vote buying scandal, we called it. And people were going through the projects in Phoenix City, Alabama, getting poor people or some of them who couldn't read and driving them to the polls and paying them $10 to vote. Vote buying scandal. Except for the 10 bucks, um, they wouldn't even have to take them to the polls. And of course, they said it was gasoline money, but they were driving them. Now they just go through it, get their, get a bundle of votes and go drop them off. And are they really marking the ballots the way the people want? Do the people know what's said? It's a, it's not a great 
system. But the Democrats have been using it to great effect, which is why in these elections, especially in my home state of California, uh, candidate X, uh, a Republican, will be leading that night in the election. He'll think he'll go to bed thinking he won, and then the votes will start trickling over the next week, and he'll lose. Uh, happens in Nevada, California. The Republicans sort of they they said that this was a rotten system, but they that, the point was they didn't really know how to do it. And after they lost, we had a we had a long, very long piece on our site by Professor Campbell. You can find it um, on Real Clear Politics. And he went back and looked at why the polls were wrong. And what he really what he really concluded is that polls weren't that bad. They were pretty good, actually. What what happened was the Democrats' ground game overwhelmed the pollsters because you were talking about likely voters. Well, these people weren't necessarily likely voters till a, a a vote wrangler showed up and got their votes. And this has caught this cost the Dem, this cost the Republicans several seats in the House in the election two thousand twenty two, and for all they for all they know it cost you know Trump in two thousand twenty. And they finally decided they need to play the game within the rules. And I, I don't think it's a great rule. I don't think it should be at all legal. But if it is legal and the Democrats are doing it, the Republicans really had no choice but to start to do it. So that, that to me is the story. So, Tom, is this going to be – because I saw an interesting tweet you put out, I guess, yesterday. Given the closeness of the polls right now between – both DeSantis and Trump, when you match them up with uh, Biden, that this is really going to be an important feature in the 20, I mean, more important feature in, in 2024. And it'll come down to the sort of usual six or eight states. And this get out the vote is going to be sort of the deciding factor. Yeah, I, I think so. And and again, I was going to reference the uh, Professor Campbell piece that we ran back about a month ago as a good guide and an explainer for what happened, not only what happened in 2022, but what will happen in 2024. It's going to be the exact same states. You know, Republicans initially tried to, they were trying to change the laws and claw back all of these things that came in uh, as sort of exceptions for the pandemic, right? Ballot, you know, drop boxes and uh, you know, mail mail in ballots and all those things, and they really weren't successful in doing that. And th- those efforts were portrayed by the media and by Democrats as being, you know, vote suppression. Every every you know, if they want to, anything they tried to do was was portrayed as being, you know, trying to disenfranchise uh, certain segments of the electorate, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I think they finally came to the realization and the conclusion, as Carl said, it's like, look. You know, however, whatever the rules of the game are, we got to play by them, and we can't just you know walk off the field and let Democrats, uh, you know, exploit these rules to to their effect. And and so, the question is, can they be can they get good enough at at it in a year? Uh, when when Democrats have been doing it, you know, for for a number of years, uh, we'll see. But but it does seem like they finally got on board with playing by the rules that are out there in all these individual states. And since we talked about it, uh, the author's name is James Campbell. The article appeared on May 16th, so any of your listeners can find it. And headline was, uh, Mystery at the Midterm, What Happened to the Red Wave? And he explains pretty good, pretty good explanation of how the Democrats use the, use the existing law and the system to maximize uh, their vote totals. Yeah, maybe I, so yeah, I wanted to sort of follow up on what, what Tom was saying there, which is that, I mean, can the Republicans get good enough at this in the time that they've got 
to make a difference. And layering on top of that, sort of observation, it's not my observation, but others have made, that things like vote harvesting sort of favor dense populations, uh, urban centers. We say, you know, both teams should play by the same rules, but the rules do favor one group over the other. And Democrats, because they're more centered in urban centers, have, have an advantage when it comes to sort of these, these types of get out the vote efforts. I don't think so. You know, Trump sabotages everything. He's lost them three elections. He's ruined individual careers. He's made them abandon their principles. And this is a perfect example of stupid sabotage. Who was a master of early vote in 2022? Ron DeSantis, where the Republicans, I think, believe out early voted the Democrats. They can get up to speed in no time on this. In rural areas, in exurban areas, wherever they want. They're going to put together a campaign to make sure that people know that voting on election day is too late and that they have to match the Democrats in their um, get out the vote efforts. And uh, Ron DeSantis was really smart to do that. He got a huge vote share. Uh, I mean, you know, a, 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 few, a huge margin because he ran up vote and anyone could have done it uh, beside him. And um, it, they need to stop listening to Donald Trump and do whatever they can. To, to match the Democrats and the tactics. And I think that if, of course, it's, like, it's more than a year, and of course they can do it. That's right, Andy. And, and uh, Professor Campbell talked about Florida, and, and, and Marco Rubio's campaign did it too. The Florida Republicans had their act together and did exactly what, what, what the Democrats had been doing all over the country, and it worked. Tom, how well do you think the Republicans are going to be able to uh, compete on this part of the playing ground in, uh, in 2024? We'll see. I mean... I've got two people here who think they can do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a little more skeptical because part of this too is, and this goes back to to I think you know AB's point. Like for for six years or five years or whatever, Republicans were conditioned to say, you know, don't cast your vote, don't put that ballot in the mail. Are you kidding me? That's the worst thing you can do. And so they're going to have to change the culture, not just not just actually build the infrastructure to find out, okay, where are the voters? How do we contact them? How do we get their ballots? How do we, the logistical structure that needs to be in place to, to actually do the harvesting and to get out the vote, but they have to change the culture and make sure that, that Republicans are now, uh, again, get on board with the idea that, yeah, we're going to put that vote in the mail or we're going to, you know, we're going to do all of these things. I'll, I'll drop it in a drop box if I have to, and, you know, just cross my fingers and hope for the best, whatever. Um, and I'm a little more perhaps skeptical that in some of these states, because again, there is uh, there is an urban-rural divide. It's been one of the the defining features of our electorate for the past couple of cycles. So Republicans, I think, are going to have to they're going to have to travel more miles. They're going to have they're not as going to be as easy to communicate to, perhaps to 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 get this message out and change the culture. So I I think it might be a little harder than people think. Tom, they could adopt as a mantra the 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 what the Chicago Democrats used to say, and you're adopted hometown, Tom, of Chicago, uh, during Mayor Daley's time, vote early and often. But I, I do believe, in fairness to these people who work so hard on these systems, no matter their ideology or where they, what region of the country they're serving in, I think that there are good systems in place where you can track your mail-in ballot. If you don't drive to a drop box and you, may, and you request it in the mail, it comes in the mail, you fill it out, you're on the phone with Carol, she's helping you. You know, you call her back if you have a problem. These people are really trying to make this work. And there is a system where you can track it if you send it on time. And then if they haven't received it, you can run over there on election day. But you can, with information campaigns, you know, with a PR effort, which Republicans certainly have the money for, um, this can be done. 
We're going to leave it there. This week we went a little long, but I appreciate uh, everyone's being here today. I want to thank A.B. Stoddard, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. We're here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, so bookmark this podcast. Come back often. It is Father's Day weekend. If you're looking for the perfect gift for that special dad, we do have the solution. You can give them a subscription to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway newsletter by signing up on our site. It's actually free. You don't have to tell them that. It's an opportunity for him to join the rest of us by going to the site and reading an article or publication with whom he disagrees. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, happy Father's Day. I'm Andrew Walworth.